please stand up with me and do your best. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Um, and okay, I will tell you about the great Christ is risen controversy. We can never agree on English translations of things. So we have multiple translations of different service texts, of different hymns of the church into English. Because I won't get into everything in detail because I could have too much fun talking about it. But there are, there are translations from Arabic to English. There are translations from Greek to English. There are translations from uh, Russian and Slavonic to English. And so we end up with all these different uh, translations of church hymns and things because, you know, orthodoxy uh, began somewhere else. It began in Jerusalem, you know, um, at the time of Pentecost. And, uh, and then as it spread... It's taken on, adopted the language of the, of the people that were evangelized. And then the people who brought orthodoxy here came from different countries and different cultures. And they brought their language with them. And uh, slowly they've been, you know, the orthodox church has been become more known. And over the last, I would say, probably 15 years, 10, 10 to 15 years, you, you might agree with me, Daniel, there's just been in like an, a huge surge of Orthodox material, books, audio especially too. I mean, audio is a new phenomenon. We take it for granted now, but it's fairly new. But even when I was first exploring Orthodoxy, there were not a lot of materials available. We started exploring Orthodoxy like 20 plus years ago, 20 or so years ago, my wife and I. And then we showed up here about 17 years ago. And my wife and I decided to become Orthodox. And we were catechized here by Father James, who had us in in class and attending services for about a year. Well, no less than a year before we uh, were officially received into the church. And then, long story short, I eventually became (laughs) his assistant priest. It took a while, you know. And uh, he retired. And uh, But anyway... Multiple translation of things of things from different languages, and then you know there's a, there's disagreement about uh, what style you know what style of English you should translate things into, and in our archdiocese we tend to use more formal sounding you know English. You may you may have noticed that in some of our um, hymns and translations and things, we tend to use more like a King James sounding translation, and uh, anyway. But the great Christ is risen controversy, which it really isn't that much of a controversy. But there are some people who respond to Christ is risen in English by saying, indeed, he is risen. And there are some who respond by saying, truly, he is risen. (laughs) Hi, Judd. 
Good to see you. We've got people signing in online. And, uh, and then people will try to argue which one's better. Indeed, is, I like the, it flows better or it's, it sounds better. Well, truly is more accurate. You know, because alithos in, in Greek means, you know, in tr- like truth. You know, alithia is truth and alithos means like in truth. So truly is better. And then voistino in Russian, it means truly. It doesn't mean indeed. I mean, it literally means truly. And uh, so... We say indeed here because oh, that's what's in my service book that my that came from my archdiocese. Now they've been printing out, they've been di- uh, publishing text, digital service texts that now recently say Christ is risen, truly he is risen. So there's schizophrenia in orthodoxy. I always tease people, if you're looking for organized religion, do not become orthodox. Um, if you're looking for salvation in the kingdom of God, become orthodox. But... Orthodoxy has a lot of a lot of structure, you know, a lot of intention, but also it is it's it's not a scientific process. It's not a legal process by which you attain the goal that you desire. It's more like planting a a tree in the ground, a sapling, like you're that sapling, and then seeing what happens. And it needs to be trimmed sometimes. You can't say, you need to trim approximately three branches every month of every single tree that's growing in order for it to have optimal growth. You know, you can say, give it this much of water, approximately, but that depends on the climate that it's growing in. Depends on how much prayer you do. It depends on your predisposition, you know, toward the spiritual life. Some, some uh, trees need more water than others. Some need a little bit less. You could say, give it approximately a quarter cup of plant food, you know. But if you give it too much, it might burn the roots or something like that. And so that's very much how uh, the spiritual life works in orthodoxy. There are rules, general guidelines, like this this is what we do. Water it every day. Go to church every week, at least. At least every Sunday. That's fail safe. But as far as the, the, the working out of your own salvation, I cannot give you a simple checklist and say, if you do this checklist, everything will be okay. Um, that's not how orthodoxy works. Because there's an untangling of, of the knot within each and every one of us. There's a healing of the ailments that, have, uh, been, that we've all been afflicted with. And we haven't all been afflicted with exactly the same ailments because, you know, your, your background and your, the comp- complexity of your sin and your struggles is just as complex as you, know, as you are a, a person. I can't look at you and say, oh, I know exactly, I know you. I know exactly what's up with you. You know what I mean? That's part of why the healing process of the church takes time. You know, it takes many, many years of enduring, kind of enduring yourself. <laughs> Honestly, enduring yourself. And thank God, God has given me a lot of patience. And so uh, I get to, so I'm trying to convince you that I will bear with you in my pastoral capacity. I don't claim to be a glow-in-the-dark elder or clairvoyant or anything like that. Or I like to joke, I'm not a glow-in-the-dark elder yet. But, but I will bear with you. 
I will struggle with you. And that's actually the calling that Christ has given us, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I will do that. And I won't do it perfectly, but that's the calling I have. So one of my favorite contemporary saints of the church, whose, whose icon we don't have in here yet. I keep talking about him, and every time I'm looking around, going, where is he? I need to get, maybe this week I'll buy one. His name's St. Ephraim. was a very gentle, humble person, and he said, Endure patiently your own, your own passions, your own struggles. We'll talk about the passions, actually, uh, hopefully if we have time today, if I don't keep rambling. Endure your own passions patiently and those of others. This is the path to salvation. This is the path to holiness, he says. And uh, so, all that being said, this uh, process is, is one that is as messy as you are. But it, there's a path to tread. There's a road to stand. There's a, there's a foundation to stand upon or there's soil to get planted into. And then we get to decide if we want to cultivate the growth where we're planted and to trust in God's timing too. So let's get into our session topic for today. We're going to talk about the fall. Can you guys look it up in your book and tell me what page it is? 79, the fall. And, huh? and what I can do here... Do you the link for this week? I never saw the link. Oh, yeah, I didn't. No, I'm sorry. I fell, I fell behind. But what I'll do is I'll share my screen with you. Oh, and it's 81 in your book. Okay, he has a new version of the book. But uh, let's see. It's been updated. All right. Thank you. So I'm sharing my screen, it says. So we don't want to go, to go here to Kindle. Can you see that Kindle on the screen, Judd? Yeah, I see Kindle. Okay. Great. So I'll bring it up, and then you can follow along with me. This chapter isn't too long, so we should be able to cover everything. And for those of you who are just in your first um, time you know, with us in class, you can pick up wherever we are. We, we, um, some of the topics build on one another, but there's a, a good amount of repetition too that takes place over the, um, the series of classes that we do. And if you miss the first couple of chapters, we'll get to them again eventually because we'll just we'll finish out the course of study and then we'll begin again and uh, and cover once again what you missed. So today we're talking about the fall of mankind. So through the, through his disobedience, man has rejected his divine vocation and has failed to realize his life as love and communion with the All Holy Trinity. God created, his, created man in his own image so that through the use of his free will in returning all that God has given him in an offering of love, man might grow ever more like God in, in, a, in an eternal communion of love with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Trinity as a communion of love. And I think that one of the greater defenses of, of Christianity is is born from the the belief that we have in love. 
What is love? Well, we would say God is love if we want to quote the scripture. What is love? Love isn't fill in the blank. I mean, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, but that just describes elements of love. You know, quoting um, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, but, but ultimately, the perfection of love is shared in the persons of the Trinity. God, who is a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talked about this um, before Pascha. And uh, if you believe in love, then you believe in intercommunion of persons. Love isn't just an emotion or an ideal, but it's an actual inter, interconnection of uh, beings who bear witness to one another, who are in uh, coherent, you could say. There's, there's, there's no great word to describe the mystery of love, but who are f- constantly going forth from themselves into one another. And the, the persons of the Trinity are in a communion, a perfect communion of love with one another. And it can only be so in a communion of persons. So a God who is, for example, a, a monad, a single God, a deity, cannot have love because one cannot have love within his or herself alone. Love, by definition, is in relation to the other. And if the only preexistent being is a monad, a single, then any concept of what we might call love would only be serving the purpose of that monad. And so through the revelation of God in the scriptures as Trinity, we've come to understand that perfect love is love as communion. Love as communion. And that's why in order for God to be perfect love, and I didn't articulate it perfectly, but in order for God to be love, there has to be an intercommunion of persons who are perfectly one, yet while being distinct from one another. That's the only way that there can be Love that is perfect. Distinct persons loving one another. And we get to enter into, you know, the, our, our, our calling as persons is to enter into the communion of that love of the Trinity. So yeah. if you talk about love, could God love Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Could that be an interperson love? Because they're one God, but three persons. Well, that's what I'm talking about. So when I talk about the Trinity, so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are the they are the 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 uncreated persons of the Trinity are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all without beginning and all without end. So what we understand of God, again, if we if we claim to understand something about God, we also have to admit that we don't understand something about God, because God's not limited to our comprehension. But we can understand God in as much as God's revealed, been revealed to us as Trinity. That's something that we accept, you know, through faith, through the revelation of Scripture and the witness of the saints. And honestly, I think through um, through experience, through our own experience, you don't experience the life in the Holy Spirit as separate somehow from Christ or encounter Christ as separate from the Holy Spirit or God the Father. And if you read the New Testament, you will find that all of the persons of the, the Trinity are always bearing witness to one another. Like 
at the baptism of Christ. You, you hear this voice from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Or you hear Christ saying, I do nothing of my own on my own authority, but only what the father tells me to do. And, uh, you know, and then again, at the baptism of Christ, the spirit in the like in the likeness of a dove, confirming the truth of the word of God, bearing witness to the divinity of Christ. And so anyway, and we went in and talked about the Trinity in detail in the past. And uh, we'll continue to talk about to refer to God as Trinity. But it's important to understand that the idea, the concept of the Trinity is not just an idea. Not just a philosophical concept. It is, it is a, a term that we use to describe something that is beyond description. Kind of like if I say, Amy. When I say Amy, I am referring to you as a unique and distinct person. But by saying your name, I'm not completely describing everything you are, every emotion, every feeling, every pain, and every sorrow that you ever had. I'm just referring to you as a unique and authentic person by that name. It doesn't mean you're, you're limited. You're, the description of you is, can be fully encompassed by referring to you as Amy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so when we talk about God as Trinity, we're, we're subscribing to the limitation of you know, words to, to, refer, to refer to something that has been revealed to us that is, again, beyond comprehension. Because the moment we try to, to say, like there's a teaching in the church about what we call positive and negative theology. If you want to impress your friends or um, send them into a little bit of a nap. <laughs> these terms. Um, in Greek, there's a term called cataphatic theology and apophatic theology. Just, do you know what theology is? Yeah. Theology comes from the, the root is it's two words put together, theos, which means God, and logos. Or like no, I won't get into the detail. Logia, like words or discussion or discourse about God. The discussion, talking about God. Um, and we can only talk about God in as much as God has revealed himself. But cataphatic theology is positive statements that we could say, like God is good, God is love, God is eternal. God is perfect, you know, God is great, God is powerful. But we would say anytime we attempt to make a positive statement about God, as if we knew that, or as if we understood or comprehended that about God, we have to negate that in some way by saying, okay, I can say that God is good, but I can also say that God is beyond comprehension. I can say that God is knowledge. But I, can, but I also have to say God is beyond knowing. You know, um, we, we have to meet every positive virtually, every positive statement we would say about God with an awareness of the incomprehensibility of God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be God. I have a question. God is beyond comprehension. Yeah, what is it? So in those icons over there, there is a level of darkness that's around Christ and then it goes into lighter and lighter at the very edge. Mm -hmm. And that kind of 
mystery and knowability that you're talking about, as far as I understand, it's represented by that level where the center is. The more that you know Christ, the deeper you get drawn into the divine mystery and mm -hmm. the less that you know. Yep. So it's both the knowing and the unknowing. That's right. Kind. But there's a name for it, a specific name for the surrounding Christ and forgetting what it is. For the what? The, uh, on those icons over there. The mandorla? Is that the word you're thinking yeah, of? That's it. Yeah. 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 Mandorla is the, is the kind of the halo. People call it a halo, but it's not a halo because a halo is like this little, like a little crown that floats above the head. But the, the term is mandorla in art, like religious art. Yeah. The one in the transfiguration? I'm not sure. I'm just talking about... He's, he's just talking about the gold that surrounds yeah. the head of Christ and the saints. Oh, no, not the gold. Not oh, the not gold. the gold? So on those icons over there, it's not the gold. It's the, the darkness. The blue, the dark blue, blue, the light blue. Oh, okay. That's what it is. The transfiguration. But in other images as well, where it's like the finger pointing... Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's oh, one over there. Yeah, like in the, the icon of St. George here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they all have the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's like the levels of, on the surface, it's more knowable, but then more mysterious, the more you That's right. And this is actually at the core of what we would call mystical theology. And mystical theology is hard for a lot of people to, to comprehend, but actually a lot of people end up here because they've lacked that mystical aspect of their faith in other experiences of Christianity. Because it was very, it was, it was, it was too logical, or it was too overly simplistic. Well, how, God's got to be. We start questioning our own presuppositions, and we think God's got to be more than I can just like. We used to say flippantly, casually, but very sweetly, genuinely. Oh yeah, I know, I know Christ, I know God, and we were expressing an intent and a faith in God, but it was a naive one because we failed to understand that the limitation of our own understanding. And so what you're talking about, the knowability and unknowability of God, is something that the fathers of the church talk about endlessly, especially the mystical you know, theologians. And St. Gregory Palamas has one of my favorite sayings, that God is not only beyond knowing, but he's also beyond unknowing. And the, the terms we use for that are mystery and paradox. <laughs> And you'll hear a lot of those in orthodoxy. Mystery. And mystery has multiple meanings in the church. But paradox. And if you, if you read like very intimate reflections of those who have gone deep in the spiritual life. Like one that, I, that I've been reading more recently is called St. Sophroni, who founded a monastery in England. Um, he was reflecting on how as someone... Goes, draws nearer to Christ, abandons his, his false perception of self and kind of abandons his own identity to God. He has a sense of nearness to God, but at the same time, he becomes acutely aware of the incomprehensibility of God and what you might perceive of as the unfathomable gulf between God and man, which is overwhelming but also inspiring. You know, because... You know, God isn't near to us like a, like a cheeseburger or a bag of chips or something that's immediately satisfying. Now, God meets us, and I call it a little bit like a sweetness. We get a sense of the sweetness of God's grace, a little bit of like a taste of the honey of God's presence. But 
but also what it does is it leads you to want more. Like an encounter with God is never satisfying. It's never fully satisfying because God is without beginning and without end. So to have a little a little taste of the savor of eternity in communion with God leads to a, a desire for communion with God in an ever-dynamic increase. You say, oh, I know God. It's like I am maybe I'm I'm starting to perceive of who God is or who I think he might be, but also I feel like I'm someone standing in the darkness while at the same time being bathed in light. That's kind of the paradox. And you're right, there's an interplay between positive and negative, so to speak, and light and darkness in the, the poetic language of the church. And necessarily so, because our, our theology in the church is not, is not uh, scientific or rationalistic, so to speak, but it's essentially experiential, I would say. We, we, we refer to it sometimes as uh, empirical, empirical theology. It can only be experienced and God can only be known by entering into that, that life lived with God. And uh, the church is, is trying to guide us into that experience. I liken it to the experience of God. Um, I liken it to the intercommunion of two people who love each other very much, who could sit in the same place at the same time without a moment, without any insecurity. You know, like the classic view of two old people on the bench who are sitting on the bench in the park, not saying anything to one another, but they're totally in love with each other. And sometimes they hold hands and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they speak and sometimes, you know, they don't. But, but their love for one another is totally like an unmediated awareness of one another's presence. Just total faith, you know, in one another. As I was getting to know my wife before we got married, I thought, I want, I want our, the basis of our relationship to be faith in one another's faith. Faith in one another's faith in God. If we can't presuppose that the other person is putting their faith in God, then there is no foundation to our relationship. It's just a bunch of worldly things that we're grasping at, you know, or some kind of affection for one another, which will surely you know, fail with time. But anyway, okay, there I go. See, that was two sentences in our book. This is what I tend to do sometimes. I try to follow along in the book because it keeps me from going for like four weeks on a particular topic. And again, I'm sorry that we're doing one session and then we're going to have a break for another week. Mother's Day and my son's birthday are on the same day. So I'm not going to do catechism next Sunday so that I can be with the family. But uh, this was a free Sunday after, after Pascha. And then Thomas Sunday, we always take a break. And then we had a wedding last week. And I just miss being together, you know, being with you, seeing your faces and interacting. And I know that you guys, you desire to, um, to have this interaction too, and to be, you know, working, going deeper. So, the Trinity. Where did I stop? Okay. So only in this way, by entering into communion with the Trinity, could man fulfill the destiny for which he was created. And only in this way could man become truly human. 
Remember, the goal of the Orthodox Church is not to escape what it means to be human, but it means to become truly human. So when we when we say things like you hear people say things like, oh, you know, it's just I it's only human, you know, to I make mistakes all the time, I'm only human. No. Being human is saying I'm human is not a justification for this sin. It's actually a judgment against you because what were we created for? We were created to be in a selfless, loving communion with God and with one another. So we have a very positive anthropology, you could say. Anthropology is the study of what it means to be human. And so we would say, by definition, a human is one who was created to be, is, who is created in the image of God and with the potential to be conformed to the likeness of God. So we have the indelible or inalienable reality of the image of God, the imprint of God in you. But also, by your free will, you have the ability to choose whether or not you want to be in communion with God, which allows you, which in order for love to be to be real, it has to be free, has to be a choice. That's why we give such a, uh, an emphasis on free will in the Orthodox Church as well. So continuing on, as Father Dimitri Staniloy, who's going to be recognized already officially, you know, recognized by many, but not officially recognized as a saint in the church, a Romanian uh, theologian. He said, the glory to which man is called is that he should grow more godlike by growing ever more human. It means to fulfill our vocation as persons to be to enter into communion with God. And if we are created and God is uncreated and we're to be conformed to God, at what point will we have achieved perfect union with God? I'm asking you. At one, if we're created and God is uncreated, at what point will we say, I finally have achieved union with God? Yes. Never. That's right. Never. Never. So for all of eternity, see, and this is pretty logical, actually. There was never a time when God was not, but there is a time when I was not, and I'm entering into communion with God, then I will be forever entering into a deeper, more abiding and continuous relationship with God. There's no state where it's like, like, finally, I've... My cup is full and that's it. The heart continues to enlarge, so to speak. You just increase in your capacity for communion with God and one another for all of eternity. That's kind of exciting to think about. Rather than trying to think of heaven like a, you know, a big endless buffet or something like that where, forgive me, I don't hate trivializing things, but where you get to eat as much as you want without getting fat or something like that. Father? Yeah. A quick question. So... Um, so you see a time where normal people like us here, mm-hmm. not insulting anyone, will get to the point where some of the saints are now, yeah. it, or maybe where they were in their life because we're going to be grown forever. And of course, we'll, we'll never catch up to them because they will, they got like a, a uh-huh. you know, they got a head start on us, uh-huh. and they're so far ahead. But we will, you know, since we have eternity to grow, we'll, yeah, you know, we'll maybe sometime, sometime. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Totally. And, and our, you know, our holiness is not like our, our growth in, conf- in conformity to the likeness of God is, um, is not something that we think about in comparison even to other people. 
but only just in comparison to ourselves. I mean, who am I, where am I, and what am I doing to draw near to God? And even through coming to an awareness, a deep awareness of our our sin and separation from God, that can serve as a, a powerful grace, like an impetus for drawing nearer to God, you know? It's a total gift. Question. So even after we pass away, are we still trying to get theosis? Like, are we still trying? So theosis, yeah, that's right. So, and you're going kind of deeper by using the term theosis. But, But theosis, by definition, as entering into union with the Trinity, is an endless process. Even after we pass away. Even after we depart. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Father. That's but we're not going to be in conflict. I mean, we wouldn't say, oh, we're still trying to, you know, like work out the details. But it is a process that continues. Now, I can say, I, you know, I don't know by experience because I haven't experienced that side of eternity, so to speak. But that's right. That's why we use the term dynamic, you know, continuous. That's why I love the, the John 1-1 says, in the beginning which God is the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. the Alpha and the Omega. So if God is the beginning, and in the beginning, mm-hmm. there was the Word, which is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus said, uh, when he went to the mountain, he was praying, that led, he was not only praying for his apostles, mm-hmm. but for everybody that would learn about Who him. Who would come after them. To him. Yeah. Let him be united. Let him, let him be. Let them be one. Let him be one, just as you and I as one. Yeah. So that means if we enter into the knowledge of who Jesus truly is, then we go and be in, in union with the beginning, which where that's where the word came from, yeah. which is Jesus. Right. I mean, I, you know, I'm sorry. It's right. it's no, it's I'm over. Sorry, it's guys. over. It's overwhelming, I, I but it's sorry, also. But I always the way I, when I see it that way is in. I was telling Carol, and Carol's like, stop it. Because in, the word in, if you really look at the, the word in, in yeah. is like inside something, that you are yeah. you are in something. Yeah, that's so right. So if God is the beginning, and the word, which is Jesus, yeah. was, the, and in the beginning yeah. was the word, so the word was in the inside mm-hmm. the beginning, and then the word is telling us to be, you know, mm-hmm. You're going to need to teach uh, theology <laughs> th- 301 or something, you know. <laughs> But no, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll comment on that briefly. So there's, there's a sense in the lives of the saints in which they start to understand the, like how powerful the, the, the written word, even the written word of God is, the scriptures. So that, like we, un, we, we love the Bible, by the way, um, just so you know. I mean, we don't just kiss it, you know. We don't just venerate it as like a sim, something that's symbolically meaningful but we need to be reading the scriptures. And I heard someone say that in the, in the lives of the saints and elders, those who are like deeply aware of the power of God being revealed to us, that it can be overwhelming even just to read like one word out of the Holy Scriptures. In, they could get caught up on the word in. You know? yes, I, I, what does that mean? Well, what is the implication of just that word? So you're on the right track. In a way, but try not to confuse your friend. You I, know? Don't. Yeah. I, I don't. Just your son. <laughs> no, but he knows what you're talking about. He yeah. does. He does. So, you know, he says, don't think about, you know, stuff like that. Because, and I said, no, I always like to, I mean, especially when it comes to 
you know, the Trinity, it's of course, a lot of people say, oh, it was never in the Bible. But if you really read and if you really look into it, it has always been there yeah. in the Old Testament, all the way from the beginning. Well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It is not. But it the, is not. But, yeah, but, but the word is a description of correct. three. Correct. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right. So, okay, continuing on. Because this relationship of love presupposes man's free gift of himself, his creation in the image of God entailed the possibility that man would not return God's love and therefore fail to fulfill his divine calling. The word, uh, we use the word vocation sometimes. Richard, you know, you hear about, he went to a vocation school or something like that. Or they'll say, what, what is your vocation of, as a Christian or something? It, the, that, the root of that is uh, voca, which means calling. So what is your calling? So we use the word kind of calling and vocation um, interchangeably. So our calling or the opportunity that we have is to respond to God's invitation to communion with Him. But in order to freely respond to the invitation, you have to have the ability to freely reject it, is what we're saying here. And indeed, this is what happened. In the book of Genesis, we read that the first formed man, Adam, which means man, disobeyed God and was expelled from paradise. This even is known as the, this event, excuse me, is known as the fall and the original sin. Every human being, without exception, is scarred by the effects of the fall. For the unity of human nature is such that the sin of one affects the lives of all. And oftentimes, you know, we, we refer to in the church of uh, sin and the human condition as a form of illness uh, rather than uh, kind of a, a legal status. And we'll talk more about that. The story itself is cast in very simple terms. God gave all the plants and trees in the world for man's nourishment and use except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent appeared to the first woman, Eve, which means mother of all the living, and enticed her to eat the forbidden fruit so that she might become like God. Eve then gave the fruit to Adam, who followed suit. For this transgression, man was barred from paradise and doomed to return to the dust from which he was taken. We hear in Genesis 3, For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The fall of mankind, however, is much more complicated than a simple act of disobedience. Man's act was ultimately a refusal to love, a refusal to enter into communion with the God who had created him. God gave the world to mankind not merely as a source of biological sustenance, but as communion with himself. This is one of the reasons why I like you to read this book that we're going to quote here, For the Life of the World, by Father Alexander Schmemann. A lot of people, they don't understand what the purpose of like sacraments, we call them in the church. What's the purpose of a sacrament? You know, like people will think that the sacraments of the church are, are formal, formal ways for men like clergy to control other people's lives. Maybe, you know, you can only draw near to God if you receive, you know, communion from this guy or something like that. But that's not, that's not the purpose of the sacraments. And I'm not going to go on a... 20-minute tangent on that. But I'm going to say that if we understand that all of creation was given to us as a form of communion with God, then after the fall and after the 
incarnation, death and resurrection of Christ, the sacramental life is a means of restoring our understanding of the world and healing our relationship with the world. So Father Alexander Schmemann in his book called For the Life of the World described God's gift in this way. He says, all that exists is God's gift to man and it all exists to make God known to man, to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food, made life for man. God blesses everything he creates. And in biblical language, this means that he makes all creation the sign and means of his presence and wisdom, love, and revelation. One of the simple ways I like to, to explain it, and it's hard, you can't, you can't talk about this stuff without sounding somewhat philosophical. But I like to say that uh, there is nothing that is apart from having been created by God. Nothing that is. No atom, no molecule, no element, no breeze, no tree, no flower, no eye, no hair, no hand, no carpet, nothing. There is nothing that is apart from having been brought into a being by God. Everything that is has been brought into being by the Creator. Therefore, it is creation. Everything that has been made is created. And so, if you want to hang on that word, Creator, and I like that word, uh, excuse me, creation, or creature, I even like to refer to us as creatures, because we have been created by God. Every time we talk about creation, or people and animals and things as creatures, we're implicitly expressing our faith in God as a creator. That there is, we're presupposing that there is a creator, and that's a good presupposition to have. Mankind's proper response to this gift of love, the only possible human response, is to receive this gift of divine love made food with thanksgiving and offer it back to God in love. There was one tree in the garden, however, which God did not bless and did not give to man as communion with himself. The serpent tempted Eve with the suggestion in Genesis 3, you shall not surely die for God. I'll just say this is in uh, King James. So God, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. This was Satan's great lie to mankind, that by eating of this tree, man would become like God. Question. Yeah. Is that the part of free will? Is that the beginning of free will? Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. So in order, in order for the yes to, to, to be meaningful, there also had to be a no. Like God could say, you, you can have everything, That's what I was kind of wondering why but not know. this. And it's, it is. It's all about human freedom, actually. God is giving us the choice to freely choose communion with him, which means that there had to be a limitation kind of built in. You know what I mean? Yeah. For us to choose to trust God. If he, if he just said, oh, do whatever you want at any time, then, then we wouldn't be free, actually. We would be slaves. We would be slaves to this world that we were placed into outside of our will. It's not like we choose to come into being. And then to, to just enjoy it. You know what I mean? But in order to, 
to freely enjoy, kind of like with cataphatic and apophatic theology, you have to have something to say no to in order for your yes to be meaningful. And the interesting thing about this teaching, and we'll talk about it again, I mentioned it, I mentioned it last time we met and I'll mention it again, is uh, that the, the teaching of the church is that this tree wasn't placed there so that we would never be able to partake of it, but so that we could obey God, trusting in His timing. Now, if our first parents had been obedient to, to God and through obedience to Him matured, see, we, we don't believe that Adam and Eve were born like fully formed and perfected, pristine maybe at that, you know, untainted, but like children. And children mature through making decisions, you know, through acts of will, good or bad as anyone as a parent knows. Um, but they had the ability to, free, to freely choose good or to freely choose what is in opposition to what is good. That's what transgression means. Trans- I like the word transgression because it's pretty descriptive. It means going against what is good, going against. And so the transgression was to disobey God and to hear this, you know, this temptation that says, well, surely you're not going to die. You'll actually be like God. And the enemy was correct. We did become more like God in a way. We became aware of our potential f- for corruption at that moment. But we weren't ready for it yet. We weren't, we weren't prepared. If we had chosen, if the first, our first parents had chosen to trust God, then the fathers uh, speculate. And it doesn't matter. Speculation doesn't get us too far now because this is what happened. But they speculated that there would be a time at which human, humanity could have, could have been ready to partake of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Having trusted God first, then they could have freely partaken of that tree. Which is an interesting thing, rather than just thinking there's some unattainable thing that God is just going, kind of like laughing at us, saying, you'll never get to have this, or something like that. And it's not a big game. It's like you said, it really is. It's a, it's a way of describing how we have fallen by our own free will. And actually, we will learn as we talk more about salvation, that salvation comes through an act of will, willfully accepting God's offer of salvation again. Now, he does much more than we can ever do. You know, we, we just assent to follow him. So it's not like our, you know, uh, everything depends. It's not like we accomplish our own salvation, but it can't be accomplished without us either. Just like the fall of humanity could not have taken place without us. You know what I mean? So those are good questions. Yes. I just heard over the last week in a, in a podcast referred out of the book, um, on the ethics of beauty, like Tim, my doctor, Dr. Timothy Petitsis. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he was speculating that when they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that what they saw was Christ crucified, the tree of life and the fruit of Christ mm-hmm. crucified on the cross, and they he, they weren't ready to handle that. Yeah, interesting. That because if you think mm-hmm. about it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's yeah. Like, 
what's the most evil thing humans could do right. is crucify their own God. Like, that's the potential you have now as a human being. That's right. To choose to be obedient or disobedient. And the fruit of that tree is the body of Christ crucified on it, right. which, is the, the, which is the full knowledge of the goodness of God. Right, but also the yeah. evil that we have the potential to crucify. Yeah. Okay. And this is kind of where Orthodox theology leads you to, right. to, to things that are they're not scientifically you know, um, proven, right. but they're, again, experiential. And, and they make sense, though. Mm-hmm. Actually makes sense to draw that conclusion. But now you don't need to, um, you don't, you can't spend the rest of your life right. trying to prove that. Right. But you can say, wow. But just even contemplating But contemplating that, yeah. yeah. And you actually hear a lot in the hymns of the church connecting the tree in the garden to the tree of the cross, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah, the wood of the cross. Mm-hmm. When we had the wreath on the cross here, the, it really made the, the crucifixion look like a tree. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, did someone else, was someone else going to say something? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can go ahead. Oh, I can't remember where I read this, but um, I think there was speculation that the church believes that whether or not uh, Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, that Jesus would have still came down and had communion with them. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's always interesting to get into speculation, uh, but... But basically, we, we would say that in order for the perfect union of, of God and man to take place, the incarnation would have taken, would have, would have had to happen. Now, of course, if you want to speculate more, then you could get into, I don't remember where this story came from, but this kind of mystical reflection by, um, by a person who said, now, if we could, if we could hear kind of this dialogue taking place before, before the creation of man among the persons of the Trinity, well, you know, if we create them and we give them the potential to enter into our love, that we also have to give them the potential to reject it. And you know that if they reject it, then one of them, one of us is going to have to become what they are in order to overcome death through crucifixion. Is that something we're willing to do? Yes, we are. You know, this kind of pre-eternal council taking place among the persons of the Trinity, knowing that, you know, the incarnation and crucifixion would have to take place in order to redeem humanity. So we we wouldn't necessarily say then that, you know, God was surprised by what happened. But we would say that God created, when God created us to hum, humanity to enter into communion with him, there was a, a, a great risk, so to speak. If God's love is so great as to allow a creature to enter into communion with him or them, you could say too, um, then also there's the potential for humans to do the exact opposite, you know, which is what was what happened when the deicide took place, you know, the, the attempt to kill life itself on the cross. Um, yeah, really so. just, uh, These are, you guys are going way deeper than I <laughs> <laughs> than we've ever gone before in this session. So. Well, that, that just made me, uh, you know, I grew up with witnesses, so we don't, they don't believe in the Trinity. 
So I was trying to wrap my head around that. Yeah. And that actually helped me uh, put the pieces together. For, yeah. Um, There's a book called The Orthodox Way. The Orthodox Way. Not the Orthodox Church, but The Orthodox Way. By It was originally written by, his name was Timothy Ware at the time, but now uh, he's since reposed, but he became a bishop, Metropolitan Callistus Ware. His, the, his name was changed when he was... Um, when he became a monk. But uh, the Orthodox Way has a really good chapter on the Trinity that I think you would like. You might find it helpful. I mean, that whole book is very good. It's, it's really nice. But the one the one on the Trinity... Yeah, that must be because I've been reading that, so that's probably one. Oh, you have? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, good. So, yeah, I think it's on my reading list that I, that I have on our website. Uh, recommended readings for, for people. Along with "For the Life of the World" by by Father Alexander Schmemann, which is again, it's deep, but we need to go deeper. We are you're used to reading headlines. Okay, I'm going to go on a little excursus here. You're used to to going on the internet and reading headlines, and you read a little bit of an article and then you click another link. I mean, I heard in a study that that like if someone stays on a particular web page for three seconds or more, it's considered a win. You know, because we're clicking so quickly, scrolling, and not really reading. One of my friends who's a really good educator, Father Josiah, is his name? Father Josiah Trenum. You may have, if, if you just explore orthodoxy online, he puts out so much content all the time. Um, the <laughs> what's that? Oh, no, that's a different one. Oh, he like, has, pat- he has patristic nectar, Father yeah. Josiah. Doesn't he have a parish uh, in California? Yeah, in Riverside, yeah. But he said... he. He's been, he's been a, a professor, college professor, and constantly teaching um, large groups of people, catechizing, and he does special t- teaching sessions all the time. And anyway, But he said, one of the problems I've noticed of people these days is that we're basically illiterate. Like we know how to read words, but we're, we don't know how to comprehend. We, we scan things and we come to our own conclusions about them. And if we want to know the truth... We can't scan things and come to the conclusion about them. We have to read, hear what's being said. I honestly say it was overcoming my biblical, I was a biblical studies major, and it was overcoming my own biblical illiteracy that led me to orthodoxy. Because I was being taught to read the Bible with certain presuppositions. I was reading into the scripture the things that I wanted to get out of it. And I caught myself doing that, even in my studies. I thought, I got it abandon this and start reading the Bible and hearing what it's actually saying. And it, it blew my mind, so to speak. You know what I mean? It really surprised me. I encounter things like in John 17, that they may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. I thought, what does that even mean? Just right now when you were saying about, <laughs> you just remind me going back when you were saying about, you know, the, the Father and the Son talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the creation. And it's like, I was just thinking back, I think I made a comment before, what a wonderful thing that they thought, let us make men in our own image. Mm -hmm. Even thinking about making us in the image of the Savior so we can relate as a human with our Savior in the the image of Mm -hmm. us coming, thought way before creation, humans were even created. Right. In the yeah. image of God. I mean, and, and of course, like, we would just say God, know, God, God yes. knows best, too, when yes. it comes down to it. Yes. You know. Um, so, continuing. Let's see what time. 
This is why we do hour and a half long sessions, you guys. <laughs> I have some friends who are like, yeah, I do catechism in six sessions um, that are an hour long each. Like, I don't I have no idea. In the early church, they did three years of catechizing people um, before receiving them into the church. So I'm like, oh, three years. That sounds that sounds more realistic. But but we are we basically we're on a, a year long track here. So there was okay to do, do where I just read that. This is where I get off kilter, where I forget where I was at. God our all-loving creator? Yes, I think so, too. So we just said this was Satan's great lie to mankind, that by eating of this tree, man would become like God. And uh, that's true and false. I mean, it was a lie in that it gave them the idea that they would be united to God. But you can't be united to God by opposing God. (laughs) You know, so that didn't work. But we did become like God because we became knowledgeable of sin, you know, through enacting sin. But anyway, so God, our all-loving creator, did not begrudge anything to mankind. My goodness. Sorry, my phone's ringing. Who's calling me? I usually mute my phone before uh, class begins. I won't go into a sales pitch about my... Um, my I call it unintelligent phone that I use. Okay, so God, our all-loving creator, did not begrudge anything to mankind, even likeness unto himself. Indeed, this was the purpose for which man was created, to become like God. But this is only possible through communion with him, for he is love and communion. Man, however, chose to deify himself, by eating of the one tree that was not given to him for communion with God. So we chose not to let God be God. Instead, we chose to take our own lives into our own hands. And this is what went wrong. In other words, man tried to become like God without God. Father Shmemen wrote, The tree is the image of the world loved for itself. And eating it is the image of life understood as an end in itself. This was, you could say, like the beginning of idolatry. The worship of something other than God. That's what idolatry is. Yes? So before the fall, were humans or just Adam and Eve created with the desire to commune with God? And then by eating the fruit was a roundabout way of getting that. Trying to, without basically being impatient. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, so that's why, so the definition of like one of the, of our human condition is the misappropriation of our desire. Like our desire is for everything that is good, for communion, for satisfaction, for love. But we take it into our own hands and we make an idol of food. We make an idol of sex. We make an idol of entertainment. You know what I mean? Of the things that were all created to be good. In sin, you see the misuse of that which was meant to be good. That's why we know that it's bad. Because our desires are inherently good, but we misuse them. And when we get to talking about the passions, which I don't think we'll get to today. (laughs) 
um, we will we'll comment on that you know in our next section session together but you're absolutely right yeah it's interesting when these little like light bulbs kind of go off at times you know so and i lost my spot again okay um yeah the simple act of disobedience on the part of adam and eve therefore is oh my goodness i went to page pages um is one of cosmic significance for it is mankind's no thank you to god it's man's refusal to realize his life as a love and communion with god who made him and every almost every parent experiences this tragedy where their children look at them and say like i don't need you anymore it's the story of the prodigal son I mean every and I think other I'm looking at you cuz you're a mother and you're right in front of me but mo- only mothers really know this most intimately because mothers mothers held this this the the lives of their children within themselves that's a communion unlike one that any man will ever understand and that's actually one of the reasons why we love the Mary so much because she experienced an intimacy a closeness with Christ unlike any other human being ever will or can so directly so intimately she understood you know the responsibility of bringing this child into the world but it's like that it's like the the pain you know you could say in some way although god is not emotional like we like we are but but we would say that god could experience the the, the pain or the tragedy of his own creation saying oh I don't you created me but I don't need you. You know mothers and fathers to some extent experience this. Father Jeremiah, we see through 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 Jesus that you know God does um you know when he wept for Lazarus mm-hmm. I mean, you know when Jesus Mhm. Yeah. Says that he kind yeah. Of sure, well that's right because Because he could have said, "Oh yeah, this is, you know, I mean, he died, but I'm going to fix it." But but because God lo- God is love and God cares, he even wept at the tragedy of the tragedy of seeing everybody. Sin. I think, yeah. I mean, personally, I think just seeing everybody, you know, the women and how much mm-hmm. they love this individual and yeah. showing human emotion, yeah. that connection with the human part of God. That's right. And as we talk about the incarnation and things more about who Christ is we will talk about the fact that God became in the when he became man he became everything that we are. There wasn't any aspect of our life of the human experience that God was separate from, you know, aside from willfully sinning. Shed emotion when he chased the um salesman out of the church. Yes. It's, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. Yeah, overturning the tables and yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's right. That's the human part of God. So, father part of God. So it's man's refusal to realize his life as love with and communion with God, who made him, that um, that led to this tragic situation. And as a result, man has made his life. and the world in which he lives into a closed circuit. So we try to live a life this is what's led to our insanity. We try to live a life that was created by God as if it as if God is not a part of it. And instead of offering his life to God in the sacrifice of love, man has chosen to, to treat the world as an end in itself. 
And in doing so, he's cut off himself, himself off from the only source of life and everlasting happiness. No longer is the world a source of communion with God. It's become slowly a means, uh, solely a means of biological sustenance. And so even when you're eating, I mean, it's like you're, you're not eating unto life. You're eating unto death. It's just, it feels like an endless toil, meaninglessness. I've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes in my, you know, my spiritual reading. And uh, it's, it hits so, so close to home. It would, it would be a great uh, apologetic for nihilism if, it didn't, if that book didn't have the conclusion that it does. I don't know if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's really good. Anyway, so Genesis 2 has the warning, For in that day that thou eatest thereof, of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. The inevitable result of man's free choice not to respond to God in love is death. But this death is not merely the cessation of biological life. Adam and Eve continued to live biologically after their transgression and expulsion from paradise. They lived out the normal course of their physical lives, but the life they lived was a living death. They had died to God And this death made their biological deaths the permanent end to a pointless life. Created to live eternally in communion with God who is love, man has enslaved himself to the limitations of his biological existence. Who, said St. Paul, shall deliver me from this body of death? In Romans 7, because man's life is no longer oriented toward fulfilling his destiny, In the image of God, all of his personal attributes and capacities have become misdirected, which is what we were just talking about. Normal energies and desires are transformed into passions that rule man's life. No longer eating in order to live, man lives in order to eat and satisfy the desires over which he has lost control. As St. Paul says in Romans 7, for that which I That which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. In other words, I do what I don't want to do and I do not do what I want to do. Enslaved to his bodily needs and desires and above all enslaved to the inevitability of death, man is made of his life an ugly caricature of the life for which he was created. By alienating himself from God, the source of love and life, Man has also alienated himself from his fellow men and from the world in which he lives. And one of the sad things about this situation is that, you know, we rather than seeing in one another an opportunity for communion as those created in the image of God, we see one another as either a source of pleasure, someone who assists me in meeting in fulfilling my own desires or a hindrance in me getting what I want out of life. So we start seeing other people as their own kind of, I don't know, chess pieces on the board of my life. Either they're an obstruction or an, an, or an assistant on my path to getting what it is that I think is best out of life. And that is, in in common parlance, that is uh, 
<laughs> using other people. You know, we have to be careful not to use other people. And the only way that we're going to overcome this tendency that we have, that we do pathologically, you know, we do it pathologically. We're not even aware of what we're doing a lot of times. Hopefully you're here because you're growing in your awareness of yourself, which is kind of troubling because it's not nice to come to an awareness of who you are uh, in a way. But at the same time, why are you troubled by it? Once again, because you know you were created for something better than that. Not to escape your humanity, but to become who you were created to be. So there's hope, even in the midst of the tragedy that we see. But one of the ways we begin to heal ourselves is through the way we treat other people. And we'll talk more and more about that. But that's very, very important to start catching ourselves in the act of abusing other people, of misusing them. Seeing them as, uh, as an inconvenience. Do I, do I treat another person as an inconvenience? Well, that means that I see them as an obstruction on my path to getting what I want. Well, when you start to trust in God, you start to divest yourself of the, the I want in life. I heard someone recently quote St. John Chrysostom, who basically said, the worst four-letter word doesn't begin with the letter F. It begins with the word M. M-I-N-E. Mine. Mine. And we're constantly feeling threatened by anyone who could deprive me of what I think is mine. You self, too. Yeah, self is another, yeah, S-E-L-F, yeah. But, uh, but we have to be careful with that one because we do believe that each person is, is a uniquely and unrepeatable, you know, in the image of God, but you're right. If ego was four-letter word, that would be a good yes, one, you know. But, you go, self, but self is a good one too. I like that, you know. Um, so mine and self. what benefits me best. Because then we see, yeah, we see the whole, we put ourselves at the center of existence. Become what? A narcissist, you know. We're made in God's image. Aren't we supposed to be gods? That's what we do. Yeah, well, we, and that's, but that's the problem. But we're trying to be, we're trying to be God without, without God. Yeah. We're trying to be God without God. Yeah. Well, we all do. We do. We do it. So an, an isolated, self-centered ego enslaved by his passions and the need to survive, man sees other people as objects to be used to attain his own desires or as threats to his individuality and freedom, you know, so, so to speak. Every ligament of our society is torn by man's self-centeredness and greed. Nations war against each other over a few square miles of earth. Ethnic groups war against other ethnic groups for reasons too ancient for anyone living to recall. Even the most primary social unit, the family, is engulfed in infidelity, bitterness, possessiveness, and hatred. Hell, said the French existentialist philosopher, Sartre, hell is other people, he said. But Dostoevsky, the great Russian Orthodox novelist of the 19th century, came much closer to the truth when he observed that 
Hell is the suffering of being no longer able to love. And that's a self-inflicted inability, just so you know. God's not going to punish us for something that you know we, we, we don't know that we're doing. Uh, he's trying to lead us unto himself. So indeed, the problem of man lies within the depths of his own being. Having cut himself off from, the, from communion with love of God, man has rendered himself unable to truly love his fellow men. This is the nature of man's fall. This is the beginning of his hell. And so therefore we would say that we, you, you experience hell even now then through your own selfishness. Through trying to fulfill desires that you cannot fulfill and no person or created thing can but only God can. People say, you have a God-shaped hole within you or something. Have you ever heard that? And that's actually, it's kind of as silly as it sounds. It's actually true, I mean, to, so to speak. There is a desire, actually at the essence of our desire, of all desire, is the desire for God. The, effect, the effects of man's fall, however, are not limited to his relationship with other people. Indeed, the whole created order, including the physical world, bears the marks of man's refusal for love. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. St. Paul says in Romans 8, the world has become a disposable commodity. Meant to be a means of communion with God, the world is now no more than an object for the fulfillment of man's self-centered desires. Thus the fall has blinded man's spiritual eyes. He is no longer able to see God in the world, but he sees the world and his life in it as an end in itself. And that's why we were so desperate, desperately grasping all the time and we're so afraid of losing what we have. The life of this world is the only life which man now knows. It has become the sum total of his existence. By this world was created, excuse me, but this world was created from nothing and exists by the goodwill of its creator. It has no life of its own. Apart from God, this world and man's life in it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Quoting the play Macbeth. As Father Alexander Schmemann said in that book, For the Life of the World, the world of nature cut off from the source of life is a dying world. For one who thinks food in itself is the source of life, eating is communion with the dying world. It is communion with death. Food itself is dead. It is life that has died and must be kept in refrigerators like a corpse. Many so-called Christians today have relegated the story of Adam and Eve to the realm of religious mythology. And it is a quaint, it's, a, it's a quaint story, so they, so they say, that may help us to understand how the ancient Israelites regarded the state of man, but it can have no real bearing on how we, as modern, scientifically-minded people, view the world and our place in it. Ironically, the arrogance of such a statement testifies to its utter falsehood. For it's the curse of fallen man that, has del- that, uh, that he deludes himself into 
taking the fallen state of things as normal. While it is certainly true that the Genesis account is not, not history in the modern sense of the word, neither is it simply a story or a religious myth. The fall of man is the most real fact of man's life, whether he realizes it or not. And you know what? I mean, you like I mentioned this. Was it the Sunday of the Merbearing Women? You know, we sometimes we want to treat the 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 resurrection as if it, it were a historical account. It happened back then. It would be easier to just think of it as a historical account. Then I could decide whether or not I believe in it and that it happened. But the 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 significance of it is that. The resurrection is a reality that happened then, but also happens and is happening even today. We're experiencing that life. And I would say you could look at the fall of man as if it were something that were written way back when. But if you start thinking about it, you think, wait, I've experienced this. I've done this. I've eaten of that tree. I've communed with death. Adam and Eve, they... They are me. This story is not just a story. It's real. They're talking about me. And that doesn't mean that it's conceptual or mythological. Actually, like like we're saying here, like the author of our text is saying, it actually proves that it very much is real. Now, whether it was a tree or, you know, people always say, when they ate of the apple, like... We, we don't know. I mean, was it an apple? It doesn't even matter. That's not the point. We know it was organic, though. We know it was organic, yeah. Okay, I'll give you that one. No pesticides. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, nice. The fall of man is the most real fact of man's life, whether he realizes it or not. And honestly, I think a lot of us are, are here, who, people who end up here, you know, we call the church a spiritual hospital. I think a lot of people who end up here uh, are here because they're starting to realize this about themselves. I know this story is true because I've, I've lived it. And I, I'm seeking a healing from this. A quick glance at this morning's newspaper will easily confirm, confirm this, that, you know, that uh, the fall is real, whether we realize it or not. The good news, however, is that this sorry state of man is not the end of the story. Even as God was expelling Adam and Eve from paradise, he promised to rectify the mess man had made of his life and redeem the wayward creatures made in his image. Through the seed of Eve, God would enter into human history and once again enable man to know him and participate in his unending life. Thus, even in the midst of the tragedy of man's fall, The God who is infinite love has not given up on us, but desires that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a quote from 1 Timothy 2. And that leaves us at 156, so we kind of need to wrap up. Maybe I'll read these these little quotes from the fathers here, and then uh, I'll let you guys go. So we have a quote from St. Athanasius the Great from his book On the Incarnation, which is another book that I encourage you to struggle through. And it has actually, it has a very, very good, the, the version published by St. Vladimir's Seminary Press, On the Incarnation, 
has an incredible uh, and helpful um, introduction written by C.S. Lewis, who was not an Orthodox Christian, but got c- close, you know, in his, in, in his approach. I don't discourage people. I, I discourage people from reading different Protestant Catholic writers. I, you know, sometimes you don't need to. Just go back and read the fathers. Read the, the, you know, the authors of the first millennium if you can. And we, we have more and more translations available and, uh, of things from the first thousand years of Christianity, which are very, very helpful. But also we need to, we need to hear some contemporary authors who are showing us how to approach, just like we need a little help reading the Bible sometimes. You know, we need help reading and interpreting um, the, the complex, sometimes writings of those who have gone before us. And the intro to On the Incarnation, written by C.S. Lewis, is actually very nice, very helpful. So if you get that, that book, we, I think we try to carry, carry it downstairs in our bookstore. Um, you'll get a gift, a double gift, a really wonderful introduction by C.S. Lewis and then the actual text by St. Athanasius the Great, also known as Athanasius. <laughs> I know some do forgive me I'm a little I, I am a little bit of a purist when it comes to certain things but you know but I'm not a legalist about it but uh, so he says for God made man thus that is an embodied spirit physical and spiritual being that had willed that he should remain in incorruption So we weren't created for death. But men, having turned from the contemplation of God to evil of their own devising, had come inevitably under the law of death. Instead of remaining in the state in which God had created them, they were in the process of becoming corrupted entirely. And death had them completely under its dominion. And as they had at the beginning come into being out of non-existence, so were they now on the way to returning through corruption to non-existence again. The presence of the presence and love of the word had called them into being. Inevitably, therefore, when they lost the knowledge of God, they lost existence with it. For it is God alone who exists. Evil is non-being, the negation and antithesis of good. So you can see as you read these things, this is why we're we're fond of quotes from the fathers. I mean, because there are there are, there's so much depth and richness to each, each of the quotes. So let's see what we have next. From St. Siloan, a more contemporary saint, he says, The soul of Adam fell sick when he was exiled from paradise, and many were the tears he shed in his distress. Likewise, every soul that has known the Lord yearns for him and cries, Where art thou, O Lord? Where art thou, my light? What hinders him from dwelling in me? This hinders him. Christ-like humility and love for my enemies are not in me. And then last, a quote from St. Irenaeus of Leon, who said, Light does not fail because men have blinded themselves. It remains with its own properties while the blinded are plunged in darkness through their own fault. Therefore, all who revolt from the Father's light and who transgressed the law of liberty, have removed themselves through their own fault, since they were created free and self-determining. And so now we're going to have to talk about what happens next. 
We're going to talk about the human condition a little bit more. Talk about the passions, because that's a term that people are not very familiar with. Um, well, they're familiar with it in common terms, like, you know, like, we're, I'm pa- what are you passionate about? Tell me what you're, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about art, I'm passionate about cooking or something. But, but historically speaking, philosophically speaking, and theologically speaking, that word uh, passion means something different, very different. And so we'll talk a little bit about that when we see each other next. And then we'll start talking about the solution to this human predicament together. So for the first half of our session, the first, I don't know, maybe it'll be, you know, six months, we'll, talk, we'll be talking more about the theology, the teaching and belief of the church. And then the second half gets into more of the, uh, the, the life in the church. And then, of course, over the course of time when we're doing catechism, uh, especially for those who are inquirers, who are new and catechumens, I want to continue to meet, to meet with you and talk to you so that we can uh, talk about where you're at and what you're working on individually. Because just coming to a class and hearing some teachings and things, that's not quite enough. Coming to church and coming to class, that's good. But also developing your own rhythm of prayer and starting to deal with your own, you know, some of the your own demons and the skeletons in your own closet. You know, that also has to take place. And that's something that happens on a more individual basis. Also, those some of those demons are exercised, so to speak. And some of those skeletons are revealed and discarded um, by just being in the church, by being in community, too. So it's not always through some special surgery that, you know, like that Father Jeremiah is going to do on you. Sometimes it is, by grace, God will give me a word for you or something, but usually it's not something magical and precise like that 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 happens. Usually it's through being in the community of the church and integrating the life of the church and prayer, you know, prayer into your own home. I call it connecting the dots. So we don't just do what we do here at church and then go and live our totally chaotic, self-ordered life. And then come back to church and get whiplash every single time. We try to connect what we're doing here and approximate it in home through, through the discipline of prayer, through beautifying our homes with iconography, through spiritual reading, you know, filling our homes with beauty and edification. So just a few little comments. All right, well, let's end with this. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs. All right, Christ is risen. Amen. God bless you. It was good to be with you. Thanks for your wonderful questions. And it was uh, very good. Very good. I have to say your